Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, good morning, church. How thankful are you for the goodness of God? Spirit of God is uh, leading us this morning in worship. Those aren't just words that we sing, but they are the words that are guiding us this morning. A good God, a good Father. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying, knowing that his hours are few. And he was thinking of you. He was thinking of me. He's praying not only for those who were with him at that moment, for his disciples who would be the ones whom he would send out as the first apostles, those who would proclaim the good news of a resurrection and a hope for all mankind through the gospel, and that they were going to go into this world and and proclaim a gospel that would, would change the world following his death, burial, and resurrection. But then it says in John chapter 17, verse 20, I pray not only for these but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. That good God, that loving Savior Jesus, was thinking of you in those moments before the cross. And his desire is that you would believe by faith in Christ for your salvation, that your sins would be forgiven, that that relationship with your creator would be restored, and that unity would be not only between you and him, but then the unity would be between you and I, his body. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be wrapping up our summer series called Life in the Tension. Life in the tension. And if you're a first-time guest with us this morning, don't worry. This message, I believe, is going to be applicable for you, even if you haven't heard the previous messages. Because this morning, we're going to be talking about what does it look like for us to live within this tension, this tension between uh, grace, the ability for us to be gracious with one another, to be understanding, sympathetic, empathetic, that we're different and that we're all in different spaces and different parts and different walks of our life, working through different challenges, and, and this need to show each other grace, but also truth, that, that there is a truth that has to be honored, that has to be uh, committed to, that we have to build our lives upon. How do we stand up for truth, the truth that God so clearly has spoken to us, that he came to give us And yet be gracious with one another as we're all walking through this process of possibly considering placing our faith in Christ or now living in Christ, considering how do we apply God's word to our life and grow in this relationship. There's a tension there because all of us are going to lean probably to one side of this spectrum. We're going to either lean towards being really gracious and just kind of saying everyone kind of needs to just be able to do what they want to do and figure things out on their own because who am I to judge? And that's one way we can approach it. And then some of us kind of lean more naturally, like there is truth and right and wrong, and I know it, and people need to agree with me. And there's this tension that says we need to actually do what Christ did. We need to imitate Jesus, who said he was full of grace and truth. He wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He was 100 and 100. 
at all times. He never compromised the truth. And yet he was able to come alongside people who were struggling in their sin, who were lost or broken, who were discouraged and depressed, who suffered great loss. And he was able to come alongside them and say, come here and let's walk through this together. Let's pursue our heavenly father together. And so we've been looking at a series saying, how do we as a church engage our culture thoughtfully with grace and truth? When our culture really is saying, we don't want what you have. In fact, we are offended at what you believe. And yet we know that what we have in Christ, what the word of God speaks, what it shares to us is what they need. All the answers they're looking for, all the hope that they're trying to find, they're not going to find it in this broken, sinful world. They're going to find it in Christ. So how do we engage a world thoughtfully while maintaining grace and truth. And so we've looked at several passages of scripture of how we can do that. But this morning, what I want us to do is I actually want us to turn inward for our final week of this series. We've been looking at how can we engage culture, but I want us to look at how we could engage each other with grace and truth. Because the reality is this, the need for grace and truth exists within the church as much as it does outside of the church. There is a need for you and I to know how to engage one another, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to to encourage and exhort and admonish one another, to stay true to the truth of God's word and yet come alongside each other and say graciously, hey, I understand that you're walking through this and that you're not where you're going to be if you continue to follow Christ and I'm okay with that. How do you and I walk out grace and truth as a church family? This need is evident for a couple of reasons. Number one, we are a diverse group of people. Just look to the person to your right and to your left. They are very different than you. Look into those people that sit on the other side of the auditorium every week. (laughs) And did you know there's a whole other church that meets at 11 o'clock here? They're different. We all got saved at a different point. We all had different experiences in our home. We've all had different experiences in our upbringing. We all have right now current situations that we're walking through. Some of them are similar, but we're all unique. We're different. We have different opinions. We have different experiences. We have different perspectives. But the second reason that we need to be able to engage each other with grace and truth is because we're all sinners. Not only are we different, we're selfish. And while our diversity can be a strength, because I believe God created his church to be diverse intentionally because he gave us a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that earth that he wants us to go and share the gospel with is diverse. And so God has created his church to be diverse, to go and represent and reflect the people that we're called to go reach. And so while I see diversity as something to be appreciated, to be seen as a gift, that we don't want to be a church where we just try to have everyone look and talk and be the same, but yet we can come together and have a common faith, a common faith in Jesus Christ, and yet our diversity is how he's equipped Salem Heights to be able to reach even this community and beyond. But that strength can quickly become a weakness if it is not spirit-led. And so this morning, I'd like us to consider three things. How do we form unity as a church among the diversity that exists here at Salem Heights? And then I want us to consider what happens if that unity is absent from our body? And finally, I want us to consider how do we maintain unity without compromising 
our personal convictions. Here's the big idea for this morning. We will not engage our culture with grace and truth if we don't engage each other with it first. We will not go out and engage our culture with that grace and truth that we see in our Savior if we don't start with that at home first. And so we're going to look at a passage out of Ephesians chapter 4 where we see a call to unity among God's people. Would you stand with me as we read our text this morning? Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. If you're ready to hear from the word of the Lord, say ready. Ready. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, we just take these moments now to recognize that this is your word and we need your help to understand what it is you'd have for us this morning. God, I'm so thankful for our church I'm thankful for the unity that already exists within this fellowship. I'm thankful for for the unity of purpose and calling that you've given our church. And yet that has not been something that just happened, God. And so I pray this morning that you would help us understand how unity is formed and that you would continue to call us to die to self and to live for you. Give us understanding this morning of what it has from this passage. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. It's clear from Ephesians chapter 4 that unity is important. The Apostle Paul here is speaking to a church in Ephesus that was a baby church. It was already starting to, to kind of feel the awkwardness and the tension of family. Isn't it true that sometimes it's the most difficult to be unified with our family, those closest with us? They get the most raw versions of ourselves. Paul is saying it's so important that you maintain unity, but it doesn't just happen. So the key question for us this morning is, how can you be unified if you are so diverse? I think the first thing is that it starts with seeing ourselves rightly. It says here, Paul writes, therefore I, prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love. If you read through Paul's letters, he's kind of a, a broken record. He says the same thing to all of his friends. And if you read throughout the whole scriptures, you're going to see that the Bible seems to see it, say the same things over and over again for centuries and centuries. Why? Because man is selfish, man is simple, man has the same need. He needs to trust in God more than himself, and he needs to remember what God has done rather than rely on himself. And so he says this here, that we need to see ourselves rightly. Seeing ourselves rightly is the first step to unity because it actually gives us the attitude. It opens the door for us to be interested in wanting to have conversation with others, to collaborate with others, to seek purpose and unity together with others. When we see ourselves rightly, it actually makes us 
know how to approach others well because we don't see others as less than ourselves. But it actually, when we see ourselves, Riley, it makes us more approachable. How approachable are you? Is it easy for people to come and have a conversation with you? Is it possible that someone would avoid coming and having a conversation with you because they know where the conversation is going to go and they just can't go there again? Now, if that's because all you're going to talk about is Jesus, don't change. <laughs> but if they can't come to you, they can't approach you because there's going to be there's going to be nails and claws and there's going to be anger and angst because of something else outside of Jesus, perhaps you're focused on the wrong thing. When we see ourselves rightly, it makes us approachable and it helps us approach others in a disarming way. I believe Paul saw himself rightly. He identifies himself here in verse one as a prisoner in the Lord. He's not making a complaint here. He's actually sharing a perspective. See, Paul doesn't feel oppressed. He's not saying, I'm a prisoner. I, all my rights have been taken away. Following Jesus means I have a lackluster life. No, he's saying it's in light of what every, everything that Christ has done. I joyfully put aside my desires, put aside myself, and I follow him. I'm his servant. See, what Paul is identifying here is that he is not the creator. He's the created being. He is not God. The universe does not revolve around him. The same is true for you and I. The world doesn't revolve around us. It says here, then in light of that, walk worthy of the calling that you have received. There is a purpose that God has given us and a unity that he desires among us that he has equipped us for, he's built us for, and he says, I'm giving this to you. This is what I want you to live for. Receive it. Back in chapter two, he put it like this. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And so God's design is that we would be equal in our diversity. God's design is equality within diversity. But you know what sin does? He takes that strength of diversity that God says, I'm gonna make this beautiful church and it's gonna be made as mosaic. All these pieces that just look sharp and edgy when they're by themselves, but I'm gonna form them together and they're gonna be this beautiful work of art. And their diversity is no longer gonna be seen as an inconvenience or an irritation. Their diversity of gifting is gonna be found as a strength. You know what sin does? You know what, what the enemy does, what culture does? It takes our diversity and it actually makes it something bad. It uses diversity to determine hierarchy. It says we're gonna put this thing up and, and this type of person or these types of people with these beliefs or in this group or this part of the world, they're the ones that are above everybody else. The world takes diversity and twists it and distorts it to create a hierarchy that God never intended that leads to the benefit of some and the oppression of others. But in God's design, he's saying the diversity is intentional. And I want you to come together and let me show off to the world what only I can do. I can take all these people out of all their brokenness and out of all their background and that they will submit their will to me and let me shape them. I will make them into something that is not only beautiful, but useful to accomplish a purpose that I've had since the foundation of the world. God's design is equality within diversity. 
And so if we are going to be unified as a church, even though we're different, not only does it mean that we have to see ourselves rightly, it means that we have to every day continually submit ourselves to the Spirit of God. See, unity is achieved through a continual submission to the Spirit. He says this here in verse three, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Some of your translations might use the word diligently or endeavoring to keep the unity. But what we have to make sure we don't misunderstand here is that when he says, all right, church, I want you to commit yourself to being unified. He's not saying take it upon yourself to make sure that you get along. Making every effort here means that every day I continually submit myself to the spirit of God so that he can form me and shape me and unify me with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Every day I have to consult the Lord and say, Lord, my tendency is to be selfish and self-focused. I want to be focused on you and I want you to shape me. I want you to place me. I want you to give me eyes to see other people in need and give me the wisdom to know how to approach them. I think of a chiropractor. Uh, Many of you go see chiropractors. The chiropractor is someone that has the ability to manipulate the body to help get misaligned joints back into place or to help muscles function as they were designed. Sometimes we can get a little bit out of sync, out of whack. But the, the job for us, if we're gonna take advantage of a chiropractor, isn't to get there and then start doing all that by ourselves as the person stands over in the corner. The chiropractor just stands there and watches as you jump on the table and start trying to like pop your back and move things around. No, your job is to get to the office and then to submit yourself to the chiropractor who's going to use their technique to know how to put you back into alignment. The same is true for us. When we're making making every effort to pursue unity in the bond of peace, it's the unity of the spirit. Did you notice that there? It's a unity that only he can produce as we submit our wills to him and we allow him to change our perspectives, allow him to change our desires, allow him to give us the wisdom to know how do I interact with this person who's a little bit, uh, you know, difficult to be around or they're a little bit sharp or I don't know how we can get along. We just see the world so differently. He can actually accomplish that. I mean, look at the qualities that he describes here in verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Those are all things that are produced by the spirit of God. So if you want to be unified, we have to submit to the spirit of God because unity is a work by the spirit. It's a supernatural work. So God is calling us to engage a world with grace and truth, but he's calling us first to engage each other with grace and truth. But you and I, we can't do that but he can do it through us. And that is the only thing that makes sense when we look at this room this morning, a full auditorium of people from different parts of Salem and the surrounding communities with different backgrounds, different ages, different life stages, different different incomes, different careers, different hopes, different dreams. And yet what allows us to come together and in one voice sing out a song that says how thankful we are to the goodness of God. It's because the spirit of God in us brings us together with people we have no business having relationship with. How thankful are you for that? But do you know that this didn't just happen? 
the fact that, that God is growing our church and that he is giving us a, a vision and a purpose to reach our city isn't because we have this great thing to offer the city. It's because he's stirring in us up to want that. He's taking us together and he's building this mosaic that actually allows us to have a voice, allows us to have a purpose, allows us to have something to offer. And it's not what we have, it's what he has done through us. But it does require us to make that effort to submit our wills to God every day. This isn't just true about church. Some of you right now are struggling with disunity in your homes, at work, with your families, with your spouses, with your kids. The first step to unity is you submitting your spirit, yourself, your whole life to God. It's not figuring it out. It's not being the one that's going to foster and and achieve justice. It's allowing him to do the work of unifying people. So what happens when when unity is absent from the church? What happens if we don't make every effort to pursue, pursue the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? What happens? Well, the first thing is it impacts our faith personally. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's writing here to his protege who he had left in Ephesus. And he says this, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen, but rather be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. When unity is absent among the body, it impacts our faith. It says here in 2 Timothy that they should not fight about words. It's basically saying, don't get caught up in these meaningless arguments, talking about stuff that doesn't matter, talking about stuff that does not edify. Because you know what happens? It says, if you get caught up talking about meaningless things, getting off, getting off of the gospel, getting off of the things that are important to Christ, what will happen? It says, it, listens, it leads to the ruin of the hearers. You know what that word ruin is in Greek? Catastrophe. It does not edify us. There is no value. It literally turns us upside down. It leads us into confusion. It leads us into doubt. When we get caught up talking about stuff and worrying about causes that aren't what Christ is about, it actually impacts our faith. When we get into our areas, when in our little huddles, we get on our soapboxes and we just start to fight for our point of view, what it does is it actually leads to ruin. It confuses us. It can lead to doubt. I've actually had friends who've walked away from Christianity because they became so discouraged with the church's inability to be unified. Constantly arguing about every little thing. And instead either left the church or went and found a religion where there just seemed to be a little bit more like this is what everybody does and everyone follows the line. When we don't have unity, when we don't make every effort to pursue that unity, it will impact our faith. It will, it will actually, it will impact it in a negative way. But the second thing it does, it impacts our function corporately as a church. It, it will actually make our witness and make the, the things that God has called us to less effective. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
Paul is talking to this church right at the beginning of this letter. And he says this in verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree in what you say, that there be no division among you and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. Disunity in the church is not new to 2023. This is is the beginning of the early church. And he's already writing to them saying, hey, I'm hearing that you guys are starting to get into little groups. If you go on to read, it's like some people say, well, I've come from the school of Peter. I come from the teachings of Paul. How, How often do we see that reflected in the church? I go to this church. I read this author. I listen to this podcast. I stand on this doctrine. I stand in this denomination. That has not led to unity. In fact, Jesus in Mark chapter three, he gives us a principle that has stood the test of time where he says a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so when we have rivalry in the church, when we are not unified, it leads to disunity, but rivalry also prevents revival. Rivalry prevents revival. We've talked about revival a lot here. Revival is not something that we cause. It's a, it's a work of the spirit of God. But what is the church called to do? It's, cause, it's called to stack the kindling. It's to be his hands and feet. It's to take the clear message of the gospel to everyone who needs to hear it. To live our lives as an offering, a sacrifice to Christ. To live not for ourselves anymore, but to live for him who gave us everything. And in doing so, we begin to engage this world and, and live for Christ. And when he works through his church, that's what brings revival. His word through his people submitted to the spirit of God. But when there's rivalry, it stunts that. And so what do we do then? Because some of the rivalry, some of the, the distinctions that happen within the church are actually good. What I don't want you to hear from me this morning is, well, what Pete's saying is that we shouldn't have any doctrinal distinctives. Because to say that does what? It puts us completely in the camp of grace. Who am I to say what's right or wrong? Let's just all get along. But the Bible is very clearly saying, hey, we got to be unified. So how do these two things work together? How can we be full of grace and truth when it comes to doctrine? If you're new to church, that word doctrine just means it's, it's where you basically take the whole Bible and you study it. And then when you look at certain topics, you take all the Bible passages that are in the Bible and you say, this is what the Bible says about this topic. And this is what the Bible says about this topic. And for years and years, since the Bible has been completed, men and women have been studying God's word to understand the doctrine, the teaching that God has given his people through the word of God. And the Bible says that God is not a God of confusion or disorder. He's actually given us his word and he's given us his Holy Spirit to understand his word. And that there's great knowledge, there's life-giving knowledge available to those who study the word of God by the power of the spirit of God. Amen? So we believe we should study it and that there is truth in it. But there seems to be so many doctrinal differences within the church. And oftentimes we make those differences hills to die on. You guys are familiar with that idiom, a hill to die on? It's like this position I take and I'm not willing to compromise it no matter what comes. I'm gonna maintain this. I'll die on this. I'll die for this cause. There's been much great advancement in the world through the church because people have been 
willing to give their lives to stand for the truth of God's word. But there has been many and much disunity caused by doctrinal differences. So is it possible to be unified without compromising? How do you and I find the right hills to die on? Well, I wanna offer this morning as we conclude just a, a something that I think is practical and helpful for us as a church. It's a, it's, a, it's a key way to approach scripture that I think it will help us maintain unity and maintain that balance of grace and truth. It's a practice that one pastor and theolo- theologian calls theological triage. If you ever had to go to the emergency room down at the hospital, I've been told by people, sometimes you can go there and it's full of people and it can be hours upon hours before you actually see somebody to help you. And I've been told, if you really wanna get back there, say you're having a heart attack, (laughs) right? Because what happens is there are certain types of medical conditions that are more serious than others. And so there is a triage nurse. Her job is, or his job, whoever it is, is going to hear the symptoms, hear the circumstance, and they're gonna determine how urgent this is, how important, where does it go? How do we prioritize it? And there are certain things, if a person comes in, they're gonna see a doctor right away because it could be the difference between life and death. And there are other symptoms and there are other circumstances where yes, we need to see you. Yes, we're here to help you, but it's gonna have to come a little bit later. Theological triage is when you and I, as students of God's word, as his people seeking to pursue that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, take the time to determine the theological priorities that God says, these are the things we cannot debate. These are the things that absolutely we have to stand on. And these are the things that we should discuss and decide for ourselves. There's a couple of examples of what these categories could look for. These are not in the Bible. These are some helpful ways to just kind of look at the scripture to help us be able to, again, maintain the unity of the spirit. One is four categories that all start with D. The first category would be those die for doctrines. These are the absolutes, the ones that if you compromise on these, you're actually not following the word of God or Christ. There are the divide for ones. These are the convictions. These are the ones that we believe this is what the scriptures are telling us and calling us to his life and practice in the church. And many times when we talk about having different churches who have kind of a little bit different beliefs, these are the doctrines where we're like, we believe on those absolutes. We're united on those absolutes, but we look at these practices, these church practices or some of these other theological doctrines a little bit differently. And just because of how we do church, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of go form our own churches and we're gonna do it a little differently. The debate for doctrines are those ones that are opinions. The Bible maybe is, is not clear, uh, it, depending on interpretation, but they don't impact the gospel or impact those absolutes. And then you have the decide for doctrines, which we're even seeing the scriptures might say, decide for yourself. What we see here is four different categories for us to kind of determine which are the things that we should absolutely say, I'm willing to give my life to stand for this. I will never compromise this. And then those ones that we say, you know what? This is just actually a matter of conviction. Choose for yourself how you're going to live this out. But one of the things that can cause disunity in the church is when we take something that I believe God intends for us to be in the decide for category and we move it into the die for category. Gavin Ortland, a pastor and teacher, gave a second way of doing theological triage. He did it by ranks. First rank doctrines are essential to the gospel itself. If you touch this doctrine, 
you're actually changing what the gospel is. Second rank, these are urgent for the health and practice of the church such that they frequently cause Christians to separate at the level of the local church denomination and or ministry. Third rank doctrines are important to Christian theology, but not enough to justify separation or division amongst Christians. And fourth rank doctrines are unimportant to our gospel witness and ministry collaboration. Why is this helpful? Because I think it answers a key question. Is it actually okay for us to put certain theological doctrines in different categories? Is it actually okay for us to, to be a church where we might not agree on every single aspect of doctrine, and yet we agree on certain ones, and that's what brings us together? Or do we have to agree on everything? Well, in the scriptures, there's a couple of places where it seems to indicate to us clearly that there are different levels of importance when it comes to doctrine. And you've heard me already say it multiple times today in this message, I believe the gospel is one of them. That's not just my opinion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse three, this is what the apostle Paul says, just before he says, this is the gospel of what you say, he says, for I passed on to you as of most important what I also received. And then he shares the gospel. What's Paul doing here? He's actually indicating that, that this doctrine, this, this teaching, this is the most important thing. This is where we need to start. This is an absolute, a die for category. This is a first rank doctrine. You have to get this right. It sets up everything else. But then there's other parts of scripture, like in Romans chapter 14, where there was this issue going on in Rome, where, where there was a debate amongst followers of Christ on whether or not it was okay to eat meat that had been offered as a sacrifice to a, a false God. And this is what he says, Romans 14, verse five and 12. Uh, there were some other things they were worried about too in 14. He talks about meat and then he talks about days of the week that should be considered as holy. And he says, one person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. And listen to what he says here in verse 12. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Here, what it indicates here is we see as Paul saying, there's gonna be some of these things where it's a matter of personal conviction. Whatever the spirit of God leads you to do on that thing, you follow that out. But he's really clear in Romans chapter 14, but don't then become the judge of other people who do it differently. Let God be the judge of that. Passages like this seem to indicate to us that there are different ranks or levels or categories. And the help of us, what helps, what we, what theological triage does for us is it allows us to maintain that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Ortland in his book says this, the results of unnecessary doctrinal division church splits, aloofness from how God is at work in our city, failed opportunities to link arms with other ministries and so on are incredibly damaging to the mission of the church. What am I trying to say? We cannot let doctrine divide us. That's not God's intent. Did God give us doctrine? Yes. Is there truth we have to stand on? Absolutely. But he's a God of unity. He's calling us to unity. So he's not going to call us to something and then say, but I'm going to give you something that you can't be unified over. So what do we need to be doing as a church? We need to constantly be coming together, making every effort to pursue the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, letting the spirit of God give us clarity and bringing us together in a way that honors God. When we practice theological triage, we clarify what really matters. Kevin DeYoung 
pastor and teacher said this, we should steer clear of theological wrangling that is speculative, goes beyond scripture, vain, more about being right than being helpful, endless, no real answer to uh, that is possible or desired or needless, mere semantics. But when we practice theological triage, we gain insight that helps us use the right tone when discussing our differences, both within the church and with those outside it. The church provides abundant opportunities for this. Look around, we're different. God's church provides a lot of opportunities for us to learn how to die to self and become unified to one another. The church provides abundant opportunities to learn how to live in that tension between grace and truth. We cannot waste it. We sit here this morning as a church that I believe has unity, but that unity is the result of decades after decades of faithful believers continuing to submit their wills to the spirit of God and God bringing together a people that have no other reason to come together than the spirit of God working them and drawing them to to be one. And you and I in this day and age and in this season of our church are called to be the ones that continue that forward. And so if we are going to reach the world and engage them thoughtfully with grace and truth, we have to be committed to showing each other grace and truth as we all grow closer to Christ. Remember, a house divided cannot stand, but our tendency is to wait for others to start first. And so the last thing I want to say to you this morning, and by far the most cheesiest, is that unity starts with you. I know. (laughs) Unity starts with you. Sometimes it's those cheesy ones that the Lord keeps in our mind. Because I know that as we go from here, we're going to go back, not just, we're not going to just be with this family the rest of the day. We're going to go back to our own families. We're going to go back to our own friends. We're going to go back into our different environments and we're going to have opportunities where unity is going to be challenged. But I just want to remind us that Christ took the first step. It says in scripture, when, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he came, he died. He took the first step. He didn't wait for us to make ourselves approachable or make ourselves, you know, to apologize. He came to us in our rebellion. The apostle Paul here saying he's taking the first step, that he's dying to self and that he's gonna live for Christ. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm gonna give my life. He's like, he, he did a ministry where he was put in prison and ultimately gave his life for taking the gospel to the world. Said, I'm not gonna, even though people are gonna reject him, they're gonna put me in prison. They don't want this. I'm still gonna follow the Lord. We too should take the initiative. And so I wanna pray for us this morning as we conclude and ask God that he would help us know him more because when we focus our attention on Christ and we know him more, we begin to see ourselves more rightly. I want to pray that we would actually get, begin to know his word even deeper this week because when we know his word better, it helps us discern levels of theological importance. It helps identify what are the things we have to be most committed to and what are the other things that we can show charity and grace to one another as we figure it out. And I want to pray that we would know his peace because this is the outcome of his church when it prioritizes truth over traditions.
Unity is so important. And we need to make every effort to pursue it. Because unity enables us to fulfill our mission for Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, we've, we've spent a number of weeks talking about how to engage culture, a culture that seems resistant, seems not, not just resistant, hostile towards truth, towards the gospel. And Father God, we've been reminded that it, it is a message of truth that the world needs. And so we can do that with grace and not be compromising the truth because that's what Jesus modeled. And so God, we want to be that, but the reminder this morning is that we actually have to be in a place where we are completely depending upon your spirit to be producing unity and us humility and gentleness and patience, all those qualities that lead to unity that needs to be produced in us first in order for us to go out and show that to one another so that we as one church can go out and accomplish this mission because you didn't just give it to us individually, you gave it to us corporately. God, I'm thankful for the the legacy of faithfulness here at Salem Heights, the decades of people submitting their wills to the Spirit of God and you unifying and growing your church. But God, we can't take that for granted. And so I pray that you would help us be a church that continues to be committed to pursuing unity and the bond of peace, to making every effort, to daily submitting our wills to yours and letting you form a beautiful mosaic that's not only something to behold, but something to be used by you to reach a lost and dying world with the good news of Jesus Christ. God, would you help our church stay unified? And for those areas where we're getting fractured or there's starting to be a little bit of rift, God, would you use your spirit of God to mend those areas, to soften our hearts and allow us to put unity above our own desires. God, we thank you for giving us this ability. And we ask for your help now. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.